Hello, ik ben Sandrine. Welcome to Step Into Mondays. So this week we are on the third part of our conversation with Bill Van Patten. So if you have not heard any of it, then you want to stop and go back to episode 69. So not the one right before, but the one before that, where we discussed the first finding to know about uh, language learner, which the first one is learners create an abstract, complex, and implicit linguistic system in their heads, just like native speakers. And that is episode 69. And for the second finding, the development of a mental representation for language has three fundamental characteristics, slow, piecemeal, and stage-like. That one is episode 70. So you want to go and listen to those so that you can find um, now follow up with the rest of it, which is finding three most learners fall short of native-like representation. Um, finding four is the basic data for acquisition are found in communicatively, communicatively embedded input. And number five, which is explicit instruction and practice on the formal elements of language do not obviate or change the basics discussed so far. So as you can see, those three actually go back to the first two a lot. So there is a lot of references to what was said earlier on as we're discussing those three. And um, yeah, so you definitely want, you don't want to start here. You want to start with episode 69 and then go to 70 and then come back. If you have been listening all along, we hope that you really enjoyed it as much as we did. It was a pleasure to talk with Bill and exchange ideas and be able to ask for clarifications. If at any point after listening to all of that, you have additional questions or questions you wish we had asked, feel free to send them to us. Um, you can reach us via Twitter, without Facebook, via email. Um, send them to us and we, we, if we have plenty, we will see about doing a follow-up episode with Bill where we can ask him that. Otherwise, we'll just pass them on to him and get responses and share that. And then um, the next episode we will have on next week, well, I'll tell you at the end of the episode, Go ahead and listen to what Bill had to say and enjoy. Welcome, Welcome to 70 Mondays. <laughs> we changed it up and now we messed it up. That's okay. Oh, good grief. Well, how are you today? I am good. I am so excited that we are talking. I know, I know. Well, you know, we've been planning this for a while, and so it's fabulous. We have um, a very, very special guest that really doesn't need an introduction. I just say his name, and everybody's like, woohoo! So <laughs> we are going to be talking with uh, Bill Van Patten, um, as, as uh, Sandrine put it, the Betty White of SLA. That cracks me up. I love it. Not age-wise, but importance-wise, right? Yes. Um, so welcome, Bill. How are you doing? I am doing much better. Thank you. Thank you. Hola. Salut. Lundi. 
Shinji, And speaking of adults, that's a nice, can I use that as a segue? Sure. Go for <laughs> to it. Talk, to talk about finding the basic finding number three <laughs> that all teachers should know, because again, it's related to all these things we're talking about, is that most learners fall short of being native-like with language and also with communication, but we're talking about language here. Um, and this is the best kept secret because teachers are so concerned about accuracy and, and so many people have pounded accuracy into teachers and, oh, they got to get that good old grammar. They're never going to be native-like. Well, the truth of the matter is with acquisition is that nobody ever really gets to be native-like, right? And so, and what learners do is they exhibit non-nativeness in a variety of domains of language, but not equally so. And what we've seen, for example, in the research is most learners can get very native-like with the constraints on syntax and sentence structure, uh, but be less native-like with, for example, with phonology and pronunciation, phonology being the sound system, right? And somewhere in between, they might be more or less native with pieces and parts of words, verb endings, but also how prefixes work, you know, and um, although there are things that govern language that make you do prefixes correctly and you don't even know it, right? Like, you know, you're learning English as a second language and you know that I can, I can uh, redecorate, I can decorate, I can redecorate, I can um, re, I could design, I can redesign, but I can't, I can drink something, but I can't redrink it. You know, and I can pet the dog, but I can't repet the dog. And you all, you know, all these things, you never make the mistake of saying I repetted the dog. You just don't. Right. Yeah. Um, because these things. So there are the pieces and parts of words that that you, you never make mistakes with other parts you do. Right. Because that's part of what acquisition is. Um, so non-nativeness can happen in, in different domains of language. And, for, and not everybody does it exactly the same way. But here's the best kept secret from teachers ready for this is that variation in non-nativeness and variation in learning exists in first language acquisition and first language use as well. Absolutely. It's not just a feature of second language acquisition. You get, there's been, one of my favorite examples, I used passives early with children. One of my favorite examples is they've done research on passives with adult speakers. And they found that your level of education is tied to how accurate and how quick you are at interpreting passives. Mm. Like basic, basic passives like, you know, uh, John was, um, John got smacked by Bob, right? Um, how fast you interpret who did what to whom there and how accurate are in certain kinds of tasks and tests shoot up the more literate you are. Because that, and what that's probably tied to is the fact that passives are much more frequent in written language than they are in spoken language, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're, if you only have a high school education, compared to someone who's got like a PhD or even a college degree or whatever, you're going to make more mistakes on interpreted passives and the, and the, and the more educated person's will because you've been exposed to fewer, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Even though, even though there, you do all, all of us have passives in our head, we have the grammar in our heads, but our performance with them is, may not be the same. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, we see tremendous variation in kids too, in, in, in child language acquisition, you know, you take, a handful of, take a hundred three-year-olds, put them in a room. They're not all at the same stage of acquisition, Absolutely. even if they were growing up under the same circumstances. They're not. Mm -hmm. Some are behind others and some are ahead of others and some are doing this and some are doing that. And because the variation is a way of life when it comes to language. Um, so we shouldn't be surprised that there's non-nativeness and different kinds of non-nativeness among learners, second language learners. It's just a fact of life. And given how long it takes to learn language, you would expect non-nativeness to be the norm, right? Yeah. But somehow there's this push all the time. 
uh, for accuracy and to be native-like, or you'll never be good with grammar if you don't learn the grammar and practice it now. Well, that's hogwash. Well, you know, we, we've talked about that before as well, uh, how we hold up that native speaker ideal, you know, to the students. And of course, we've looked at it in the context of, you know, it's kind of discouraging <laughs> to the students because they see this native speaker, right? Um, and so we have made some videos um, that show learners struggling and those are so much, I mean, the, the students identify so much more with those, oh, look, it's normal to struggle um, to try and communicate. And so I think, yeah, we need to kind of normalize the struggle a little bit more to communicate because I mean, you are not after a couple of weeks of Spanish going to be able to sound like all these videos that you see. Um, you know, the, the teachers find these wonderful videos on YouTube or, you know, whatever. You're, they're, the, the kids are not gonna sound like that um, immediately and we, and we you know, we hold up that ideal so much that sometimes I think that it really is kind of discouraging uh, to the students in, in terms of I'm never going to get there as well. And I, I'm not, I don't know exactly why we hold up that native speaker ideal. No, I, I agree. And I think our job really as teachers is to, is to make good non-natives. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I, I, I Mar Margaret Mead. Margaret Mead, there's a famous quote. This is in Sandy Savignon's book. If you don't know Sandy Savignon's work, she was a pioneer in communicative oh, language yeah. teaching from the early 70s. And she quotes Margaret Mead as, in one chapter where she said, Margaret Mead is saying something, I'm paraphrasing. Margaret Mead is saying, I'm not a very good linguist. I don't learn languages well. Now, does everybody out in the audience know who Margaret Mead is? She was an anthropologist mm -hmm. who did a lot of work, I think, in the Samoan Islands and in, the, and in I don't know what parts of Polynesia or what, but anyway. So, um, so. She said, she said, I'm not a very good linguist. I don't learn languages well. But when I'm in the village, everybody speaks to me because I know who's married to who. I know whose pig is dead. And, I, <laughs> and what she's telling you is that it's more about communication and affect than it is about accuracy and being native-like. Mm -hmm. People yeah. pull you in, in, at least in her experience with the kinds of people that she was dealing with, right? And mm -hmm. it's true. It's, I mean, that could be very true. People can, I, I'd rather speak to someone who's non-native, who's fun and engaging and, and, and um, is interested in me than someone who's a perfect speaker, who's full of himself. Yes. Right. <laughs> yeah. No doubt. No doubt. Well, no. you know, that, this whole idea of nativeness, um, what is your take on pronunciation though you know so many people and i don't want to pick on the french sandrine <laughs> i'll go for it you love but, it you know well i know but i mean you know, some of them they get they're so irate and so ticky about pronunciation uh, i mean what will our students ever achieve anything like that i mean is it possible in terms of pronunciation, or should we just worry about pronunciation that impedes comprehension? Well, yeah, there's, again, one of the things that's showing up in all the things we've talked about, this abstract implicit system, the piecemeal nature and slow nature of acquisition, um, the, uh, the, what is it we talked about before? Um, Falling short of native-like, yeah. Yeah, um, being, yeah, not being native-like um, in, in most domains and so on. Um, 
what all these things underlie is the following truism that something internal to the learner governs acquisition, mm-hmm. period. And again, it's up to theories, different theories to just try to determine what that thing is or what those things are. Um, but it, the learner's in control of pronunciation and the sound system as much as that person's in control of everything else about language, right? Um, and so um, pronunciation in particular and phonology is one of the hardest things for people to get native like in. It doesn't mean they can't. It's just, it tends to be in a, in a large group of population. It tends to be the thing that most people are non-native like in. And even people with incredibly, I mean, good stuff otherwise. Look at Angela Merkel, for example. Her English is impeccable. Mm-hmm. Her syntax, her discourse, her ability to write, her not I mean, she's a distinguished speaker. Right. But she has an accent. You can tell she's German, right? You know, it's not, it's not like, you know, look at Arnold Schwarzenegger. You can tell he's Austrian or German, or he's Austrian actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but these are people with incredibly good language skills and incredibly good communicators. I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger was the governor of California, right? right. So, um, but that's pronunciation is always the hardest thing. And so I just, you know, it's, uh, to me, it's just the kind of same thing of the rest of language. You got to let learners, the learners are in charge of it. And things will change if and when they need to change. And sometimes they may never change. Yeah. Well, you know, that's one of the things I just, I have a colleague who is all about pronunciation and, you know, we have people who, um, we observe each other. And so whenever he observes me, I just get copious notes about my pronunciation of certain sounds. <laughs> and I'm like, you know what, I'm doing the best I can and everybody understands me. So, and, and like with the French, I spent hours in a language lab trying to figure out the difference between the a, eh, you know, that, what is it? The, the A-I-S and then the E with the accent. I'm like, I don't know. They sound the same to me. I can't hear the difference. I mean, I just spend hours on that. And my, you know, every now and then I'd get one right. And that teacher was listening going, oh, good for you. But I'm like, oh my gosh, y'all are killing me with this pronunciation thing there. I mean, we're not all going to be natives. I didn't grow up, you know, speaking it. So I was- The problem with native as well as you have regions. So let's take the U.S. If you're in Alabama and if you're in New York, California, Boston, like the pronunciation is not the same. So which one is the native speaker? Exactly. Which, which one do I need to model? Um, take France, same thing. You go to the north, you go to the south, you have, oh my gosh, the difference. I'm from closer to Switzerland. So we drag it out. We are slow into the way we're talking. We're in the South. They're just like, I don't know. They're in the sun all the time and they're hyped up and they just <laughs> rattle it out. And I think they probably double the rate of speech that you mentioned earlier. <laughs> 300 words a minute. But yeah. they, they're, we're all native speakers, right? So what is that ideal? So I wonder, is it a way because again, we get a quantify everything and other subjects in school are able to be quantified like math and science and whatever it's easy to see you're right or you're wrong and so we're trying to peg that into the languages as well yeah that's exactly right that's exactly what's going on or admin at least and then they've convinced everybody else that that's the way to do it i mean the the the, and 
the grading is the biggest detriment to language acquisition. Mm-hmm. And so institutionalized education is what makes language teaching look the way it looks across the country. Yep. Um, and it's, and it's, it's not because teachers don't know necessarily what they can do or should do and would like to do. It's because they're working with severe constraints. And this is at every level, by the way, not just, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, K through 12. Um, universities are like, I mean, it's, you know, it's all levels. People are constrained by the, 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 this whole idea of grades and GPAs, and I got to put a nine on it or a 10 on it or an A or a B or a 3.5 or, you know, and so the minute you got to do that, you have to come up with ways to figure yeah. out what's the difference between an A and a B right. or a B and a C. Yeah. That's true. So let me just ask you, this just popped into my head and I don't know, this may come out in in a later discussion, but you know, Actful has says, oh, you need to set learning targets. Like this class, the learning target is going to be novice high. And so basically with the grading, they're like, well, if you reach novice high, you get, you know, the B, if you exceed novice high, you get an A, if you're below it, you know, I mean. That's hogwash. Okay. It's hogwash for a number of reasons, and I'll tell you why. Um, it ignores what we know about acquisition and variation and individual differences. It penalizes the learner who's slower in acquiring language compared to the person who's faster acquiring a language. Um, again, what I said earlier, imagine you have 103-year-olds in a room. Yeah. And they're not all at the same place. All of a sudden now I'm going to call a speech pathologist in because those 10 in the corner over there are not at the same place as the other 10 on the other side of the room. Mm-hmm. They need remediation or there's something wrong with them. Are they going to get an F? No, yeah. no. I don't. And so why would we do that to language acquisition or, and proficiency? Proficiency should not be tied to um, outcomes that grade the students. What proficiency should be used for, in my opinion, is how I use the Michigan State, is your own program evaluation. So here's how we did it. No grades were tied into your proficiency level. Okay. What we did is we said, we set the goal of um, 33% of the students getting out of our fourth semester Spanish class should be at the intermediate mid-level or above. Okay. Knowing that was ambitious. Mm-hmm. So when we did our massive testing and we found out that it was more like 25% were falling short of our goal. So we didn't, the students, there were no grades laid that we used that hot benchmark to then sit back and go, how can we get more people up to intermediate mid? What are we doing in our curriculum mm-hmm. or what aren't we doing in our curriculum to get more up there? Mm-hmm. So we didn't use it as a way to grade and or penalize or reward students. We use it as a way to evaluate our program. Okay. So outcomes aren't about what students get on their record. Outcomes are about the way we perceive what we do and our, how good our curricula are. Um, good is not the best word, but, but how effective or how, I don't know, whatever. Um, and so, um, so this is a complete distortion. It's a horrible way to use proficiency benchmarks. Horrible, horrible, horrible way. All it does is substitute one thing for the other. It mm-hmm. does. And think about it. It's old wine and new bottles. So what does that mean? That means that we wind up teaching the same old thing, but a different way. Okay. As opposed to just rethinking language instruction altogether. Well, I just, I'll double check, but it seems like I remember reading in, in one of their um, 
IPA books that that was what they recommended because there has been a huge debate with teachers that will know if they reach the proficiency target, you know, then that should be an A and others are like, no, if you give them an A for reaching the proficiency target, then, you know, if they go above the proficiency target, what do you give them? And, you know, I mean, I just remember there was that huge debate, right, Sandrine? I'm not crazy. And, 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 and I think you're thinking at a, um, a presentation that we saw. No, but I thought I read it too somewhere. I can't remember, but I know it originally, or what I remember of it was a presentation where um, somebody had that statement or like, well, if they're doing what you ask them to do, why are you not giving them top grade? Because that's what you're asking them to do. But then, yeah, it goes back into, we're looking at the wrong thing. <laughs> right, but, but, and think about it this way too. One thing I don't like about the guidelines is, do you really want novice to be a target? To speak right. in speak in words and memorize phrases, like what the hell does that mean? And why would I want my learners to memorize phrases and speak with those? I mean, that that makes no sense. I mean, the the only target that makes sense to me to begin with is intermediate mid. That's the only one that makes sense if you want any kind of target. And again, it wouldn't be for your learner or your class, but for your program. So after so many years of Spanish or French or German, um, how many learners am I trying to get into the immediate mid range? and how successful I'm at doing that, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, and some will be more, some will be above immediate mid, some will be lower, but you know, my, my idea is, I'm using it to evaluate myself, not the students. Right. Um, and so, but novice to me is just, it's, I don't even, I don't, I've never, <laughs> when I used to talk to my instructors, I go, ah, forget novice, Let's, we're gonna ignore novice because it makes no sense to even talk about who cares about novice learners, they can't do anything anyway. <laughs> We're only going to talk about intermediate mid because that's where the action begins to happen, begins to happen, right? But um, so forget about novice. I don't care if they're a novice or not. Hmm. Okay. So. Well, you know, I'll go back and double check. I know it was at the actual conference. So, I mean, maybe actual doesn't say it, but it was at a conference. I'll go back and double check. But I really thought I read that somewhere. I mean, I could be. I don't know. I, I can't tell you. I don't, I don't think Actful does that, but I can't tell you for sure. I don't, it, may I don't have been that, it may have just been that session at Actful that I'm thinking mm -hmm. about. I think that's what you're thinking about. Okay. Because the person made the statement and you and I looked at each other and said, well, they reached what you wanted them to reach. They're, they're performing at what you've set as the target and the target should be the A. Now, mm -hmm. whether you want room for an A plus or not, that's a whole different debate. But if they're reaching that, why are you going to give them a B, especially considering the weight that that B carries um, beyond thing, because you have GPAs that are tied to that. And do you see, and do you see also how that rewards explicit learning and not acquisition? Yes. To, to do that, particularly at the novice level. Mm -hmm. So, Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. It does. Uh, so where are we? Oh, yeah. So it now does. we're talking about um, um, the fourth basic finding that all teachers should know. And that's just the basic data for acquisition are found in communicatively embedded input. Right. Um, and, and what all that means is that acquisition develops in the head of the learner, not because of practice, but because the learner is exposed to language in communicative contexts. And it's during that act of comprehension, trying to understand what someone is saying or trying to understand what someone's written, um, where the data for language acquisition are found, right? Now, what's important for teachers to understand about this idea that the basic data for acquisition are found in communicative embedded input are a couple of things. 
first the phrase, the data for language acquisition. Mm-hmm. What we've been talking about all along is that learners are in control of acquisition. <clears throat> so a lot of people think that learners are getting rules and verb forms from the input, for example. I mean, I actually hear teachers say that, right? Um, and I've, I've heard teachers and, and even non-teachers say, well, learners internalize rules. No, the learners don't internalize anything. What they do is they extract bits and pieces of language from the input they're exposed to. And then whatever processes they have in their brain and their mind that construct language over time, they use those bits and pieces, right? So they're not internalizing rules. They're not internalizing forms. They're getting bits and pieces of things. Go back earlier um, for what I said about the past tense. You might remember I said that learners mm-hmm. in Spanish, while they're getting bits and pieces of the present tense, they're beginning to pencil in the idea that present tense puts a stress on the verb form, on the stem of the verb, whereas non-present tense puts a stress on the ending. I heard a dog or something, right? You did, and I jumped. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't expecting her. I didn't know what that was. That was cute. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> she scared me because I was I was paying so close attention. <laughs> right. See, you were wrapped. The input was so compelling and so engaging. You were wrapped. No, it was I'm mean, heck that there's so much that there's so much in that that um you know it did yeah. Anyway, so so to get back to this. So what the point is is that. The learners aren't internalizing verb points at that point, but, but the, the learners the learners gotten a piece of data from the input, which is, hey, look at the stress shift from stem to ending. Something's going on there. That's a little piece of datum or a little piece of data, right? That the learner has taken from the input. And, and that's, what, that's why we talk about data in the input. We don't talk about rules or verb forms or structure, anything like that. And they don't internalize rules or structures or verb forms. They get pieces of data and they assemble them in certain ways over time in their heads, right? So, so that goes back is, to 10 at one, right? That's where they're taking all of that and they're creating their right, own thing. Right. So you have to think about language evolving in their heads. It grows mm-hmm. almost like from an acorn to a tree, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, for, to an oak tree. Um, and so it's, it's, it's because learners are working with bits and pieces of data from the input that they're exposed to that it is wrong for teachers to walk away with an implication that now we can teach language through input. No, 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 no. So we don't teach the past tense now through input. We don't teach the case endings through input. We don't, no, we don't do any of that. I mean, you can try and do that and it's as doomed to failure as making them practice and repeat after you. Um, because you're trying to make something happen that's not going to happen that way. They're going to get bits. They're going to pull from input over time, the bits and pieces that they need at particular points in time as their language is evolving and constructing itself. So you can, you can try to input if you want all the verb forms you want, but the learner ultimately calls from the input and pulls from the input what he or she needs at a given point in time in bits and pieces and constructs a linguistic system. So, so I don't want people to think that what we're saying here is now teach through input. No, what we're saying is provide lots of input, but don't teach through input. So what's the difference? There's a big difference. If, you're, if, 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 you're, if you teach through input, you're trying to teach the same old thing, but just a new way. You're, you're, you're using input as a technique. Mm-hmm. Okay, as a, so imagine, for example, like, let's just say you're in an immersion class in Quebec, 
right? Or somewhere in Canada. And you're in a third grade social study, or I don't know, sixth grade social studies class. You're not in that class. You're not getting input on verb tenses or input on how to use the subjunctive in French. You're getting input. What you're talking about is, um, you know, who are the major players in the world? Well, you know, who's part of the UN? Who's part? And so that's what we should be thinking about in our language classes is communication and content, not necessarily like immersion content, but content like we were talking about earlier, like, okay, Bobby just wore a blue shirt three times in class. What the hell is in this closet? Let's find out. Um, I'm focusing now on content and communication and learners are going to pull from the input they're exposed to what they need to pull at a given point in time as their language is constructing itself. Um, I'm not trying to teach colors. I'm not trying to teach vocabulary for clothing. I just happened to notice his shirt. So let's talk about his shirt. Um, so, right. So the difference between the two is that, like you're saying, in this type of thing, the, the, the example of Bobby wearing the, the blue shirt three days in a row or for three days that week is conversation about what's going on in Bobby's life, what is his favorite color, that type of thing, very, versus using that as a springboard for, oh, so Bobby's favorite color would be blue. Well, Krista, what's your favorite color? Oh, red. Bill, what's your favorite color? Oh, green, because oh God, then we're yes. hitting the colors. You're trying to, to you're trying to teach the colors through input and conversation. No. Okay. Don't try to teach anything through input and conversation. Mm -hmm. Try to have a conversation and focus on content, meaningful, interesting, compelling content. And it doesn't have to be just about Bobby's life. It could be okay. about one of the one of the activities, because I'm I'm a big believer in input-based tasks. And one of the tasks I use with teachers and workshops is this one where we look at ages. And this is a great thing for university kids. And actually it might work in high school kids too, because it's interesting, is I have four major life events on a sheet of paper. One is um, graduating from university or college, mm -hmm. getting married, having a baby, and dying. So what you have to do in the first step of the activity, the, the, the task is write down at what age you think all those things happen. So I'll ask the two of you right now, at what age do you think the typical student graduates from college? Mm, 20, 24, 23. No, well, 23, 24. 23, 24. Okay, good. Okay. Now, what's, what, at what age do you think the typical, this is what you'd be doing on your own. This is not oral. We're not, so you're just oh, writing these right. down on your piece of paper, right? So, um, so what, at what age do you think um, people, the average person gets married? Where do they live? <laughs> this, doesn't make any difference. Honest, so if and then you're not in Alabama, I'm going to say 19. <laughs> no, I'm talking about the United States. If you did like, if you looked at the census report, what do you think is the uh, okay. average age for getting married? 28, 27, 28, 25. Mm. Okay. Now, and then we could go on. So mm -hmm. then the next step is I'd put you in pairs and you'd have to share and see if you can argue with each other, you know, which one. Will. Then I'd call back and say, so I'd say, Krista, you and Sandrine were in your group together. So what age did you say people graduate from college? And what is Sandrine saying? You tell me. And, mm -hmm. and so we'd put them on the board. So you guys mm -hmm. never agreed? No, okay. I'd go through this and find out from everybody what they think the average age from college we put on the board. And then what about getting married? Uh, da, 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 and we do the same thing. And then what about having a baby? And what about dying, right? And so, and what you inevitably find out is nobody knows anything. 
<laughs> and so, and so we go, we go, okay, let's look what the census. And I put the ac actual answers up from the latest U.S. census. The average age from graduating college is 25.5 years. Because people don't think about non-traditional learners. They only think about that classic, you get into high, you enter college at 18, you graduate in four years, you're 21, 22, and boom. No, actually, that's like leave it to beaver 1950s. That's like that doesn't happen anymore, right? Just like the family's family's not always, you know, a mom and a dad and 2.5 children. Um, and so then you find out that the average age for getting married is ta-da, survey says 28.5. And your average age for having a child is 26, which everybody goes, what? You think yeah, so so and then we come back to that and then we talk about the they're they're always off on the average age for death too for dying. And so what it leads into is discussions about well, let's talk about maybe why. And they don't have the language to do why. So I have to do a lot of the scaffolding for them. But they're university kids and they can come up with some ideas and they shout them out in English and I put words on the board for them in Spanish and so on. And um, so so my point being is that compelling and interesting things in class don't have to just be about Bobby and his life or right. the mama's boy, or your family. It could be about real life things like, like this, and you learn something new about the world around you, and you did it in the second language. Mm -hmm. So, okay, seeing that then, I mean, what do you do in your classes? I mean, do you have, do you like create these thematic units of stuff, or do you just go in and go, hmm, what do we want to talk about today? Oh, no, you can't just go on what we're talking about today. Although, if somebody like Jacob says, I'm a mommy's boy, I'm going to go with it. Because that's, I can't let go of that, right? Um, but um, I go in with tasks planned and I use my tasks in certain ways. I, I backward design from the tasks, right? And I do little mini tasks and little activities and things that get up so we can do the task, right? So that particular task, for example, if they don't have numbers to talk right. about ages. So we, you know, we basically work on the numbers 20 through 100. Okay. So, and here's what they are. So I ask some activities with that. Before. And then they might not have the words for like age and stuff like that. So I, I, I built a couple of days of, of activities and mini tasks together. So when we get to that task, they've got the basic tools they need in order to perform that task. Okay. And so then I then I scaffold the discussion afterwards because they still don't have all the language for that. But so how do you choose your tasks? I mean, what what do you decide? I mean, is important. I mean, trial and error. I just it's 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 not so much important. But what do I think is interesting? What are they going to find interesting? And nine times out of 10, if I find it interesting, they find it interesting because I get excited about it. Um, and um, like, I would never go in and do an activity in which, um, or a task in which we talk about, you know, who are the world leaders? Yeah, I can kind of, that would kind of gloss their eyes over. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we might do something like, they could get interested in something like, you know, Putin, friend or foe? I mean, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's true. I might, I could build something around that, maybe, you know, or. Um, so you kind of look at the news and look at different things like that to get ideas about what's, what to, to talk about, what to teach? No, I, I read pop psychology magazines and things like that. And so I find interesting things too, like what is your, what is your favorite flavor ice cream reveal about your personality? Mm. That's a really interesting one too. Um, and about cats and dogs and, and the relationship, you know, your preference for cats and dogs and what that, how that ties into certain personality types and what that means. Um, things like that, you know, and then stuff that, I don't know, I just find things and do them, you know. And then... Okay. Okay. Well, I, I, cause I'm just thinking, you know, there are teachers probably out there going, 
you keep saying don't use the textbooks and this, that, and the other, but what the heck am I going to do? <laughs> How do I find my ideas? <laughs> right. And, and, and it's going to be different for universities from high schools, for example. So my first day of class doesn't look like what I'm talking about. Um, this, it is task driven because in university, in a university class, I'm going to have 25 to 26 students in there, most of them who don't know each other. Right. You're going to have, if you're teaching ninth grade, most of these kids know each other. Yeah. So what I do the first day is going to be different from what you do the first day. So my first day is all about them finding out who everybody is, where they're from, and what their major is. Right. So, so that's my task I'm headed for. It's going to take a couple of days to get there because, and I want that information too, because I want to know who they are. Right. So um, I get to get to know my students. Um, and so the, the first, the first day is full of activities about learning to say what, you know, how do you say my name is, your name is, and his name is, or her name is, right? What, how do you say that in Spanish? Those kinds of things, you know, and where are you from? And I'm from, and, you know, that kind of stuff. And so I have all these little mini activities and tasks that we're doing all kinds of fun things. And we're looking at famous people like, you know, what's his name and what's his name? And what's her name? And, you know, blah, blah. And we, I had this one task that was really interesting. We start off with celebrities, with male actors, and they get progressively harder for the students to identify. Oh, I'll say, como se llama? And they'll go, oh, Leonardo DiCaprio. Okay, okay. And then by the time we get to like the sixth one on the on the slide, half of them get it, half of them don't. We get to the last, oh, okay. So that's interesting. You know Leonardo DiCaprio. So then we go on and then we do actresses, right? And same thing. Then I then I go to politicians and they don't get any of them right. <laughs> they don't get any of them right. Well, they get like the president right, right? But that's about it. And so then we stop, I pause, I go, isn't that interesting? I say this thing, interesante, and they can hear what that means. And I say, you know more about celebrities than you do about politicians. And they all kind of like get that sheepish look on their face. Like, okay, let's go on, let's go on. And they just find out something about themselves, right? About that. And, and what they're learning to do is learn how to say his name is, because what's going to happen later on at the end of the class is you're going to go around the room and find five people that you don't know right? And then I'm going to call on you to present at least one of them to the class. Right. So you have to be able to say, you have to point and say, her name is such and such, and she's from San Jose, California, mm -hmm. or whatever, whatever, that, whatever we're going to get done that hour, right? So I have to be able to do that. Um, and so, um, and so we, and so then we have activities where, but you also have to be able to ask them their name. So then we have activities that are games that we play with about, um, you know, um, we you have a, a so uh, you um, I have this sheet that they um, that has a script on it, right? Um, and so um, the um, okay, oh God, I'm trying to my brain. I'm in a brain fart. Maybe we have. I have been talking too long. I don't know. Um, but it involves them the class trying to figure out who this person who this person is pretending to be. Right. By you going through a series of, it's almost like 20 questions, right? Um, and so, uh, anyway, and so, um, and so, and embedded in there, you know, are, are things like, is your name is, you know, are you from, you know, so they learn to ask those kinds of questions and how, how you hear, they hear those over and over and over again, blah, blah, blah. The point is I do all these little activities and things that lead up to the task, which is you have to meet five people and you're going to present at least one of them to the class. That's the task I'm headed for, for that day, right? So my first day is going to look different from what you might do in a ninth grade class because everybody knows each other. So you're going to do something different that first day. That works in my class. It won't work. This is why 
communication is context dependent. Who are your participants? What are the setting? And what's the purpose of why you want to talk about stuff? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And correct me if I'm totally wrong, and I probably are. The example that you had, though, from day one is more of that teaching via input, right? Well, we were talking about the distinction earlier because you are feeding them those specific forms that they need. Right, right. Because, because the... You're building that, toward that community. So then they have legs under them and can move on, right? Right, right. For that particular task. But notice, I never walk away thinking now they've learned how to say those things. They're gonna right. they're gonna forget those things. They're gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna be pieces and parts that really made it into their system. Right. The rest are using some of their explicit learning abilities to be able to perform that task. And I'm happy with that. It's fine. Mm -hmm. Right. Cause I know that that how I know how language is gonna work, right? Um, and so if I do that, I know, um, but notice that what I'm not teaching them, I'm just teaching them chunks of language that way. I'm not teaching them any verb forms, right, structures, right. particular vocabularies or anything. No, not, that's right. what I'm not doing. So. Useful things. They can pick up on it. They can start right. building their own represent mental representation of it. Right. And then as you're building up few days into it, few weeks into it, that's when you maybe move away from that more structured and go more toward the, what does ice cream flavors say about you where it's not. Right. And, and, I, and, and again, whatever task I construct for that, I do a backwards buildup to get to that task. Right. And so who knows, I don't know what's going to be there depending on the nature of the task. Right. But that, that's my class again. And that's how I do it. Somebody else could do something. I look at, look at like TPRS is different from what I do. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the techniques we use, like circling and repeating, asking questions a certain way and doing that, and that those are kinds of things are similar. Uh, but the way I structure my class and what drives is different. Mm -hmm. but, right. But well, TPRS, because I actually did a training back in the fall and um, or in December, it's very, I mean, the title says it all. It's based on the story that you're using. Right. And right. you can build your own story to get right. to whatever you're having. But the idea is, is that teaching through input because we are bringing those structures. They are seeing them. They're getting that correspondence and, and all of that. Right. Right. I mean, I see it as a pace model, but. Really not, not quite. No, pace is no, the, don't make that. No. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to disagree with you, okay. but pace no, 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 is no, quite fine. different. Pace is quite different. Pace is, is truly is old wine and new bottles. Uh, TPRS and structures in TPRS doesn't mean structures at all. Like it means in traditional language teaching structures just means whatever phrase is important for that day. You know, right, the so. thing that struck me about it when I did the training and, and we did an, an interview with them, um, which if anybody looks for it, it's not there anymore because with the controversy that's going with the whole TPRS thing, it was like, you know, I don't really want to get behind the politics, but um, side note, but um, is that the instructor said, well, really, you don't have to know that much of the language. You just have to be a day ahead of the students. And that... And, and, you know, he, he did a demonstration with us with Japanese and I mean, yeah, he's had maybe three months of learning Japanese through their method. And that was the thing. And 
to me, it's like, well, it's going to limit somewhat because you're not going to have knowledge necessary to bring everything in so that. Yeah, I can't imagine that working in third or fourth year classes, for example. No. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of the thing. Yeah. And, and I, I tried it this in the spring with my students. Um, I was forced into the grammar, so I had one class that was set where we did straight up grammar and it harked painfully. And then the other two, we did the TPRS bit and, and I could see some of what was happening, but I think most of it was mostly memorization just because you're using that same formula over and over and over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. but I, but I think it depends and TPRS depends on who's doing it and, and it's, and it's, it's changed a little bit over the years too, depending on who you're talking, mm -hmm. you talk to. Um, but, um, but again, so look, look at immersion, TPRS, my input based task driven mm -hmm. kinds of classrooms, look at content based learning, look at the natural approach that Tracy Terrell had developed. And so on. these are all predicated on the same things, right. same ideas, um, same principles we're talking about. So let me get to the last finding here, um, and because it's related to all the things we talked about, um, and it should surprise no one that this fact, the fifth fact, uh, is this one, that explicit instruction and practice on the formal elements of language do not obviate or change the previous four basic findings. <laughs> I mean, everybody so should have reached that conclusion by now. <laughs> Right. And there, yeah. And so your abstract, implicit, complex nature of language does not change because of explicit instruction. In fact, as we said before, learning rules and textbook stuff does not turn into that thing. Um, the explicit instruction practice on formal elements of language does not um, affect the piecemeal, um, stage like, and slow nature of acquisition. Again, a lot of research we have are on classroom learners who've gone through that kind of learning. And they still show all this piecemeal stage-like stuff going on. My work on Set and Stud started back in the 80s before we were really doing this kind of stuff. And these are people who were being taught out of a textbook in the college level and blah, blah, I pulled them out of class and did all this testing over, the, over time. And, and, uh, and, this, and what's interesting is, guess what? This research on my research on Set and Stud that I started in the 80s has now been looked at in various ways. I just, there was just a paper published about Korean learners learning Spanish in Korea. Now, try to tell me that Korea is a country where they're all about communication and, and comprehensible input and acquisition. No. And guess what they're showing? <laughs> Bill was right. <laughs> the basic stages of acquisition of the copular verbs in Spanish look the same for Korean learners, which doesn't have a verb for be, as English learners who have a verb for be. Um, and, and so, yeah. Um, so, and so on. Anyway, so the idea here is that we've got all this, this data. They don't come from naturalistic learners. They come from naturalistic and classroom-based learners. And that, that's what's so interesting um, and powerful about, about the limits of formal instruction, mm -hmm. right? So, um, but sometimes teachers get conflicting information. This is what I'm concerned about. And I thought it was worth bringing up here with you all is that I sometimes hear um, teachers say, but what about this study that shows instructions effective or this other study that shows something similar? Mm -hmm. um, and, and yes, it's true. There's a whole subfield out there called instructed second language research um, that tries 
to look at this and, and purports to show such things. But that research is so heavily criticized for two things. First of all, it's usually short-term in nature. So the five studies we have that go back and look at what happened to those learners nine months or a year later, guess what? They're back to where they were before they had any instruction. So if you only test them right away, guess what? They're probably using some kind of explicit knowledge to perform on the task you've given them, right? And the second criticism that's been leveled against all this research, and it's a very valid one, um, is that the majority of assessment or testing you do in that kind of research biases for explicit learning and explicit knowledge. It doesn't test acquisition, period. And so, um, so, so teachers are lulled into thinking that, oh yeah, this research is showing something. It's not showing anything at all, um, in my opinion, except the following. The only conclusion you can make is explicit, the research on explicit teaching is very good at getting you explicit knowledge. And you might be able to do some things with explicit knowledge, but you can't talk at all about acquisition from that research. Mm-hmm. So. Anyway, so so those are the those are the, the five things. I don't know if you all want to talk a little bit more about that re- that last one, but that's and that's a tough nut to swallow. Teachers don't like that one a lot of times when I talk about, it, but that the research is the research is just absolutely clear to me, and it's clear to other people. There are some scholars who who are finally getting around to saying, yeah, it's kind of true that that research doesn't really show what we think it shows. Well, I think that teachers resist this one so much because they're like, well, if that's true, then I'm wasting my time in the classroom. What am I doing? You know, and they, they don't they don't like that because they also don't know necessarily what to do. Right. Well, that's what I was thinking yeah. is that uh, you have that part of the knowledge where it's like, OK, so there is that. And you're right. And that one teacher goes, well, what I'm doing is pointless. So what should I do? But that's the part, that's the, the piece that's make, missing, right? What do they do? So I'm glad you were showing examples or talking of examples of what you do because it shows what to do. Yeah. I think the next part is teachers going, okay, I'm on board. I get it. I see what you're saying, but I don't have the time to come up with all of that. Of course, of course. And that's part of the problem we have. And you have people trying to come up with stuff. That's what, you know, T. Paris books about and, and, and Carol's company, Carol Graff's company and Karen Rowan's company and other people are trying to come up with materials for people to have stuff to do in class. And that's why they do workshops and trainings and so on and so forth mm-hmm. to give teachers the tools to let go of textbooks. Um, Cause it's not happening. Like what Krista says, you got them for 14 weeks. What the heck can Krista do in 14 weeks? to wean these people from textbooks. She can't do it all. Um, And this is why I think we need to look back at teacher education programs um, and say, what do we want to rethink exactly what language education is like in teacher education programs? What tools are they really getting? Mm -hmm. Um, And then also trying to find teachers, cooperating teachers and teachers to pair them up with when they do their internships and their practice teaching to make sure that they can put some of those things into practice, right? Oh well, I mean, that's what I was going to say, too, because, I mean, in the 14 weeks that Krista has her students, maybe she can talk them into, you know, this is the way to do it. But then they're going to get into the classroom and have experienced teachers in the classroom who are going to be like, no, 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 just just follow the textbook. Don't worry about it. We don't have time. We have too much of that, you know, because of all the external things. And so at that point, they're like, what do I do? Do I go with what I know is right? Or do I go with what I'm being told by the profession at large? 
Right. Um, and exactly. And, uh, and a lot, what a, what a lot of teachers wind up doing um, is doing something hybrid. It's like old wine and new bottles. So they take tasks or take input or they take stories and try to teach the old stuff using these other things as techniques to do it. Um, you know, and that's, that's probably better than doing the really old stuff, but it's still going to result in not, not, not be ideal either in a certain sense. So, um, it's a step in the right direction and, you know, and, and you can't blame teachers for doing that. I certainly don't. No. And I've no, never, I mean, ever followed K through 12, but at the, at the higher level university level, I mean, you were talking about the programs. Um, I've got the literature background. So honestly, I only had to do one methods class so that I could teach. Right. And that's it. I did others because I said, I want to know how to teach, which I don't know that that did much. So I did what was required in literature. Everything else, I looked at pedagogy and how to and research and whatnot. But how many of our, you know, higher ed colleagues come from a world where they're specialists in their 17th century literature and know nothing about language acquisition and they're like no well i mean core repetition works we've been doing for 50 years it's here to stay and how do you fight that mm -hmm. um yeah exactly and and it you it's it's again it's a sociology of the profession it goes back to that paper i wrote in 2015 in espania mm -hmm. you should read it where are the experts where are they experts? well and i i think too that um you know, sometimes teachers fall into, again, because maybe they're new and they, they're so excited and they go out there. And so they're doing all of this stuff and then their students move to the next level. Oh right? gosh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Spanish mm -hmm. two or three. And those teachers come to you and go, I don't know what you have been teaching these kids because they don't know this and they can't conjugate these verbs and they can't do that. And so then, you know, those poor teachers feel like I'm such a failure. <laughs> what have I, and then they revert back to it because they don't want, you know, I mean, it's, it's really a tough conundrum, like you're saying, because they don't want their kids to feel like they're not prepared for that next level but your whole idea of what is prepared mean I, I mean it's it you have to kind of come to a consensus in your department of what all that means and you have to have these really hard discussions I think mm -hmm. I, I, you do you have to have these discussions about the sociology of the profession and and there's actually there's one of the things I did earlier on the sheet of paper, which I'm going to talk about in a minute, because um, I think it it's, it talks about what we need to do as a profession, or it, it, it triangulates in a real way things we need to do. But um, I just want to say the following based on what you were saying, Krista, about you know if you get to level three and you get a different teacher, and oh my God, what you've been doing in the last two levels, and so on and so forth. If I had one wish, I could wave my hand. And I'm no longer in academia, so I can say this. <laughs> the first thing I would get rid of if they put me in charge of the world are AP exams and advanced placement. <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd get rid of that. I absolutely get rid of it. Um, it's a detriment to language teachers. Leave it, leave it, leave it in, uh, leave it in English. Leave it in other, leave it in other languages. I don't, I mean, the other disciplines. I don't care. 
Spanish and French and German and Russian are not subject matter like other languages where you should have an AP exam and AP stuff going on. And you shouldn't let that, because think of how that drives the curriculum. One of the teachers at the level three and level four are already thinking about when they get to AP and that's why they're wanting to know, why weren't you doing this in Spanish one and French two? Well, I'm not being driven by the AP the way you are. So if we got rid, just think of what would happen if we get rid, got rid of advanced placement. And that, that was gone as an idea. And didn't have to worry about whether learners were going to place in college. And who gives a crap, right? <laughs> so like, so I, that would be the first thing I'd get rid of. Um, you know, my so. issue with the test, and it's something we talked about earlier, is that you're asking 18 years old or 18-year-olds to form an opinion on a topic. Because that's what the essay is. You're giving them two samples, and they have to formulate an opinion on whether they are for this or against that. They're 18. They don't know. They don't care because they're also taking topics that they don't care about or they don't know enough about. French one a few years back was, should seniors still be allowed to drive? Like, what do they care? They don't know enough. They're barely enough drivers themselves. They've been driven for two years if they're lucky. Mm -hmm, right. right. And you're asking them to formulate an opinion on that cultural comparison. You're asking them to compare your culture to another culture that you've seen just briefly about. So then they fall on that stereotyping. Oh, African countries are poor and they have no food and they're starved to death. Right. Because they they get that drive through culture aspect. And that's the problem with that. I mean, one of the issue to me, big issues with that test is not not just what can they do with the language It's asking them skills that they have not mastered mm -hmm. and, and content areas that they're uh, they're unfamiliar with and they don't care about. I agree. Yeah. Um, and, and, yeah. And so that there's all kinds of reasons to rethink. The advanced placement exam and I, i'm just and i i just say get rid of it because it's easier to get rid of it than to try to rethink it in my opinion so someone can yell at me i'll, I'll get hate mail on that <laughs> boy we're gonna have a long list of stuff that people can yell at you about that's <laughs> yeah, okay won't, won't be the first time <laughs> um I think so you had I... said you have something that you can oh yeah um yes. people People listening can't see when I'm holding up for you guys to see, but it's a little triangle thing I thought of earlier when we were first talking. I call it the three A's, the triangle of the three A's that we need, that need to be part of our professional discussion. Mm -hmm. Acquisition, attitude, assessment. Mm. Okay. So we have to change our thinking about acquisition. All these things we're talking about today are part of that. Right. Then we have to think about what does assessment mean and what are we assessing and why? And then we have to think about our attitudes toward what language education is and our belief systems about things. Um, those three things are all must be dealt with and talked about openly um, for us to, I think, to move forward and to do true innovation in language teaching. Otherwise, we'll just be doing, again, what we've always done, which is old wine and new bottles. That's all it is. Yeah. And, you know, there... I think it in the Bible they talk about putting, um, you know, wine in old wine skins and it, new wine in old skins and they burst and everything and it makes a mess and that kind of is what we have here. <laughs> we keep trying to do and then we wind up with a mess. Sometimes of what you know what language classes are, um, absolutely. But to me it just seems like 
getting getting people to really embrace what language second language acquisition research says I don't know to me that just seems to be the hardest thing I don't know and, it is. And you know what? Another thing we have to do too is go after publishers and hold them to task. This happened to me recently. There was a company, which I'll go nameless, who were coming out with new products and they really go, oh, Bill, we would like to talk to you about what we're doing and we'd like to have you as a consultant and so on. And they were convinced they were developing communicative materials and they sent me their books to look at and so on. And so we had finally had our conference call and they had their product developer or whatever she was calling on it. She had that. And when I said, these materials aren't communicative, oh, yes, they are, <laughs> this and this and this and this. And I said, no, they're not. And at the back of my head, I said, who do you think you're talking to here? <laughs> you know. So, but I didn't, I keep that kind of, I keep that kind of haughtiness to myself. I just, no, here, here's why I believe you're incorrect. And let's talk about the definition of communication and some blah, 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 blah. And they never spoke to me again, this company. Um, but here's my point, read their preface, read the preface of any textbook. And I wrote about this in 1998 <laughs> <laughs> in another article about how textbook publishers and textbooks are the biggest teachers or educators of teachers about what second language acquisition is and what it means to teach. Yeah. That's, yeah. you know, that, and, what they, I, and what they do and they are Sneaky. I was around in the communicative revolution. You were not, Krista. Um, Sandra, I don't think you were either. I was around. Oh, no. I'm, and I'm I, a baby in the, in the I whole watched, thing. <laughs> I watched this happen. And then I watched it happen with proficiency. The same damn textbook that was published in 1969, in its third edition, all of a sudden had a little subtitle called A Communicative Approach. <laughs> and that preface was talking about how this develops communication and blah, blah, blah. And Sandy Savignon and I are rolling our eyes going, what the hell? <laughs> it was like, no, it doesn't. But that was the buzzword then. Yes. Then professionally came along in the 80s. And that same textbook was now in its seventh edition. And guess what? Communicative approach got dropped and it was now a proficiency-oriented textbook. Oh. And so my point being is that is that this is what happens with commercial materials. And I'm not blaming publishers because it's their job to sell materials. That's what they do. It's their job to make money. Um, and so it's us, the, 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 the woke people, as it were, in language education, <laughs> that need to, to, to need to say, look, you can't do this anymore. And you can't believe what you see in text. Textbooks aren't, do not portray acquisition. And, you know, and guess what? Publishers will respond to that. Because well, they know, want to, they want to make money, but they don't know what to do until we ask for it. Well, you, you know, it's interesting that you say that because I talked with a publisher one time and I said, you know, I don't understand why you guys keep selling, you know, these books, you've just put new window dressing, you know, on the same old thing. And I said, what you need is this, 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 blah, blah, blah. And the guy said, it doesn't sell. He said, we had a book and it was kind of like what you're describing, but it didn't sell. Teachers don't want that. They want these traditional grammar-based books that cover everything. And, you know, that book that you just referenced that was so horrible, 
has been our top seller for 35 years. And so of course we're not going to change it because it's our top seller and we're making money. And I thought, oh, that's just, I mean, it was heartbreaking, but that's what the publisher told me. He said, "Mm -mm, teachers don't want that. They keep wanting to buy the same thing. And I just thought, oh, oh my goodness. And you know, that's kind of one of the things we've had. I've had discussions with colleagues before about, I can't believe they're using an elementary textbook in an intermediate level class. And I was like, Oh, you know, it's, it's ridiculous because they're looking at it purely from, you know, that grammatical perspective that, you know, well, uh, they haven't learned the, you know, future perfect and the conditional perfect. And I'm like, okay, they've had three semesters. They'll, they'll get it eventually. Well, they don't know the plus quam perfecto del segundo. Why not? And I'm like, well, we haven't gotten there yet. I'm still trying to get them to use complete sentences in the present tense. I mean, come on, you know, and, and so, but who deemed that textbook an elementary level textbook, right? It, the publishers. So again, they're the ones who are driving this idea. And it's like, mm-mm, you, you can't look at it from that, that angle. So yes, it's, you're right. It's absolutely, it's absolutely frustrating from that perspective. (laughs) You know, interestingly, it's funny you said that about consulting for a company bill, because I had, and I don't know where it came from, but they were asking me to review a new, it's kind of a textbook, but it's more of an online based program. And I was like, okay. And I read their introduction and they cited you. They were talking about, yeah, build and patents is that we have to have that. I mean, they were going through and I was like, okay, you got my interest here. They, they, they seem to know what they're talking about in their introduction. Let's go see the product. And then I went and looked at it and I was, and I told them that, I mean, I did my thing. And then afterwards they're like, Hey, do you have a moment to have a zoom call with us? We, we really want to pick your brain a little bit more. And I told them and I said, you are not doing anything different from any other textbook. Your introduction, you look like you've got it together. The development of it, it's not there. You're doing the same thing. There is nothing communicative in what you're saying. There is nothing that is proficiency-based. You're just going through the same old stuff that everybody else has ever done. And she looked at me, the person who was there, and just she was taking copious notes. And I thought, why didn't you just record this? And then you could go (laughs) back to it. Would have been a lot easier. I mean, her eyes got so big and she was like, oh my gosh, you have so many good ideas. I'm like, oh my God, if you read your own introduction, you would know that this isn't up to par. But I have not heard back from them either. <laughs> no, no, and 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 you won't. And honestly, poor publishers. I, f- I feel bad for them because they, they don't know what to do. They're, they're caught between a rock and a hard place. And I've worked with yeah. some publishers who want to do something different, mm-hmm. and they don't know how to make it happen because they know it won't sell. Right. That's the bottom line, right there. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. Absolutely. And so you know. Um, and I don't, I don't, you know, I, I'm almost leery of trying to do something. I started developing my own materials as uh, Krista probably knows because she's seen, she may have seen some of them, the Cuentos Cortos. And then the, um, I call it the Bridge Literature Series with Angel, Elena, Danielle, and I'm working on the fourth one, Gloria. Um, and these are stories, it's, it's, it's literature, it's fiction for language learners as opposed to, you know, let's wait and they'll read literature when they get to Don Quixote or whatever. No, uh-uh. we can give them interesting, really compelling things to read very early on. 
Mm-hmm. And the idea I had with the cuentos cortos is that they're, they're short flash fiction. The story's never more than 400 words and they're broken up into three sections. So you're like, they're really little short things to read and you can work within the class. And they have tasks with them and discourse scrambles and things like that. And the idea I had when I was working with those is if I were to go back and be in charge of a language program again, and I've got some language programs doing this. Um, I don't have, I mean, some have adopted my materials and doing this. You use each story and you do backward buildup. No more textbook. You take the cuentos corto. So what's that first story? It's called El Secreto. About this guy who's typing in his laptop. He's got the secret. He won't let anybody know what the secret is. Um, and, you know, not his mother doesn't know. His father doesn't know. His brother, his brother doesn't know. His best friend doesn't know. And, you know, it's infuriating because in the end, you don't know what a secret is, right? But Yeah, you never tell us because I read it. Right, yeah. <laughs> And it's got this great task afterwards, which, which reveals that, that everybody's gossipy. And this is why the kid doesn't want to tell us. Mm-hmm. You, you'd go to take this task afterwards and you wind up, you wind up finding out, yeah, I really want to know a secret. Well, see, because you can talk, you'll gossip about him. That's why he's the one who didn't know. <laughs> um, but anyway, and so um, you do backward buildup and you go, what do they need to be able to read that? How long will it take for me to get them to a point where they can read that? And you pull out the bits and pieces you need and you start developing activities and many tasks. And maybe it's three weeks I can get there. Maybe it's four weeks, right? Whatever. And then you, there's your curriculum for one month. And then you take the next story and the task that goes with it. Okay. And, and you do backward build it from there. Um, so that's what I would have done if I had stayed in academia. And um, that's where I was headed anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and that's, that's some of the kinds of things that would be nice to teach teachers how to do in teacher education is how to do backward buildup. What does that really mm-hmm. mean? Yes. Oh, but you know what? Backward design. <laughs> Sandrine and I have done some workshops on that and tried to get teachers to, oh my gosh, it's like pulling teeth. I mean, we got so frustrated. There was this one workshop we did and we were just like, I give up here. They just want to look at, you know, look at these textbooks that the textbook company, he was sponsoring the, the workshop. And so we finally, that last hour, we just sat down because they were just so, because it was, it was hard, you know, for them, they were so used to just taking chapter one, chapter two, you know, and we were like, well, what is your, what is your, you know, essential question for this, you know, this particular topic? And they're like, how to order food. It's like, no, that's not an essential question. No. <laughs> We, just, we do have to give the the disclaimer that that workshop we had 12 people who had signed up for it who wanted to be there yeah that's true. and it was organized in a district where the district supervisor decided she was going to use our workshop as her back to school meeting so she forced all 40 or 50 of her language teachers to show up that's crazy. Wasted their first two hours by sitting in a chair, looking at them and going, so what do you do this summer? And forced a lot of them to, to share. So they were there because they had to and they were paid, but they really didn't want to be there for anything else. So then we came along and we're like, okay, backward design. This is how you do it. Yeah, they resisted to every single bit of it. And when we said, work on your own things, and we do have some textbooks that can help you support you, maybe, you know, find some activities because sometimes you can pull some or it can be inspiration. At that point, that's when they, they were like piranhas on a, on a stake and were like, okay. And the poor 12 who signed up for it, who really wanted to get the learning out of it, were just kind of washed out because they couldn't, we couldn't pull them back out and all of that. 
So we will say that, that, you know, that that was the situation there. But yeah, but no, I mean, I think that's what teachers really need to do. Um, the, I, you know, and I was just thinking because actually Sandrine and I talked, I am going to get to do, I'm so excited, a Spanish um, conversation and culture course. It's the first time I get to do it and I can do whatever I want. I have total freedom. And I was like, I don't know what to do with myself. And so, you know, I'm like, I'm not going to use a textbook. This is super exciting. So I probably should pull up those cuentos cortos and see what Mm-hmm. what I can come up with there that was that was brilliant look at me I got a I got an idea so fabulous yeah yeah <laughs> and I was let me know, let me know and I can I can I can help you with that too anything you you know I can brainstorm with you on how to use them and so on there are different ways to use them but and flash fiction works really well because you know we could we're dealing with short attention spans but that doesn't mean you can't have meaty things going right. on too there is a wonderful story in there you're going to love Krista if you have read it it's called um what was it called it's a story, and I always use Latinos because I'm Latinos. I use Latinos in the U.S. Um, as the main characters. It's all first person because I like you get more, you get better input with first person than you do third person. Mm-hmm. Um, and it pushes acquisition along a little bit better too. Um, but um, so it's this um, young girl who's 16 who lives in the middle of nowhere in New Mexico in a town of like 600 people, and she's reading she's reading Amelia Earhart's autobiography. Oh. And she dreams of being an air pilot mm-hmm. and her parents don't get it. And, and her two brothers just want to stay on that little ranch there, live in them. That's what they're all used to. And she befriends an artist, an older woman who's like in her fifties or something. And, uh, and it's the one who tells her, you can be anything you want to be. And I won't tell you how the story ends, but I mean, it's, a, it's, that's a pretty meaty little story. And guess what? It's a told in a way that you can backward design to get to it and be there in a month, three weeks, maybe, you know, mm-hmm. um, and stories like that. I mean, so you wanted to, there's another great story too. It's a kind of a, it's one of my funny ones, but it's called, um, uh, what's it called? Quiero ser caracol. That's about the slug who wants to be a snail. Cause he thinks snails are more prestigious than being slugs. <laughs> And he even talks about you go to a French restaurant. What do you see on the menu? You see, you see escargot. You don't see, you know, slugs. Um, he goes, he goes, it's like being a toad. He goes, when was the last time you saw toad legs on the menu? He goes, frog legs. So he goes, I'm tired of being looked upon, down upon. He's like, I want to be a caracol. I want to be a snail. And then he goes, wait, do I really want to be on a menu? <laughs> Do I want to be someone's, you know, plato del día, he says. And then he goes, no, no, maybe not. That's the end of the story. And it really gets you thinking about when you're satisfied with something, what you're not satisfied with, you know. And the, the task I have is students get to rank things about prestige. Like, is this car more prestige that? Is this professional more prestige that, that? And where do we get these ideas of prestige from, right? So you can have really simple things, but they're meaty. You right. can do really interesting things because I, I teach, again, university level. But there's no reason why you can't do this with high school students, too. Like, high school students aren't stupid. No. You know? You know the yeah. biggest complaint of high school students, and I heard that out of my son when he was in high school? My teachers tell us we're almost adults. We need to act like adults, but they treat us like we're 10-year-olds. And they give us 10-year-old materials. And exactly. And they, he would get so frustrated with it because of that. So, yeah, you can do those activities with high school students. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, and then there's, uh, oh, there's, oh, this one great, oh my God, this one, I wrote this one right after Parkland shooting. I think it's in the second volume because there's three volumes of Cuentos Cortos. There's five in each, each volume. Um, and it's about this girl who's with her grandmother on the day of the dead going to the cemetery, right? And she's like 16 as well. I always do my age group between the ages of like 14 and 20 or 21 so that I'm hitting the high school. Mm -hmm. um, uh, once in a while, there's a, like, a, like a, a young person and like a, there's one story about a young boy and his dog. But I know kids can relate to that because they were just kids 10 years ago, right? So mm -hmm. I, anyway, so um, my story is never about 40 year olds or 50 year olds because right? <laughs> they can't relate to that. But um, she's 16 and she's at the cemetery with her her grandmother who's honoring uh, one of the fallen uncles who's a veteran. And while her grandmother's saying a rosary or praying over the thing, she's like taking a tour of the little tombstones and she sees this one tombstone of this girl who was her exact same age, born on her birthday, but died at the age of 15. Mm. And she becomes obsessed, like, who was this girl? Why has she died? And when she gets back to the library, she starts doing a Google search on her and finds out she died in a school shooting. And so she goes, oh, my God. And she's like freaked out by it. And then just as she's getting up and leaving the library, she hears shots in the hallway and the story ends. Um, and I did that story. I piloted that story with some students. They loved it. It was, it was right after Parkland. Of course, Tusa was all in the news. But, you know, that's students' realities and lives, too. You know, not, you know, tell me about your family. <laughs> Are you afraid? You know? And, and so anyway. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that is super cool. Now I'm, now I'm excited. So I've got to, I've got some more things to contemplate to get the, I mean, this class is not until the spring, but you know, you got to start planning early and reading and choosing things. So yeah. uh, what level, what level is this? It's a, it's an intermediate, it's okay. an intermediate level class. So yeah, those, those would work in there. Cause those are even they're designed for, you can work with beginners and intermediates. You can just, it depends on how you structure things and so on. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I'm excited. That's a great, I'm so excited. I have a new, <laughs> have a new look at that. We just got like all that information, like, and we got to ask the questions we've been wanting to ask and kind of like get food for thoughts and you got ideas out of it. I know this is fabulous. This is fabulous. Okay. Well, it's certainly been uh, enlightening, educational. We um, appreciate so much you coming and sharing all this valuable, valuable information with us. And um, my pleasure. We will, um, you know, on our website with these episodes, we'll certainly reference the books mm -hmm. that you have and those articles that you talked about. Um, I can't wait to finish the one about um, crashing 40 years later. I'm going to try to finish that one up this weekend. Um, so yeah, so guys, there's a lot out there. If you have any questions or anything that you want to, you know, ask, you know, to further this conversation, you can let us know. Um, and we'll, we'll probably just pass it along to Bill. We'll pass it along to Bill. We won't even, <laughs> we won't even attempt it. <laughs> this is a question from someone who listened. Okay. So you we will do the group it. email though, so that we get the response as well. And we learn to the answer. <laughs> I can, I can just hear the podcast now. So Rose Marie from Hoboken, New Jersey wants to know the following. <laughs>
That's exactly it. And we'd be happy to do that, guys. So send in questions if you have, you know, if you have some kind of questions. So, but again, thank you so much, Bill. This has just been wonderful. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. I love talking about these topics. I love talking to teachers, love sharing ideas. I love hearing things too. And I love getting questions. It makes me think. Yes. Thinking, Thinking is good. So there you have it. Here, all of what Bill had to discuss with us. So here in this episode, it was most learners for short, fall short of native lab representation. The basic data for acquisition are found in communicatively embedded input and explicit instruction in practice on the formal elements of language do not obviate or change the basics discussed so far. So we hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. It was fabulous talking to Bill. We really appreciate him taking the time to discuss this important information with us. And um, next week, next episode, what Krista and I are planning on doing is taking what Bill told us and attempt to create at least one activity or one day, one lesson Um, I don't know if we'll be day one or further into the lessons, but try to work with that to create something using the principles he gave us, because that is what we do, right? We bring the theory to the practice. So here we talked with Bill, we had all of the theory and we attempted to get the practice, but now we're going to break it down just as much for us as for you, our audience. So if you have ideas before that, feel free to share with us. Um, afterwards, whatever, just reach out, let us know questions, comments, reactions. And like I said earlier, if you have a lot of questions, all of you, then maybe we can put them to Bill and do a follow-up interview where you get to hear him talk. Sometimes talking is easier than writing. So reach out. You know where to find us at Into Mondays on Twitter. Same thing on Facebook, our email, stepintomondays at gmail.com, or you can go to the website, stepintomondays.com, and uh, leave us a a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, leave us a written review. Most of all, share with your colleagues. We all need to have that knowledge. So... (laughs) 